Hello and welcome back to another episode of the It's a Crime O'Clock Somewhere podcast. This is episode 113. Today, I'll be talking about a murder that occurred in 2000. However, this won't be the only murder discussed in today's case. My sources for today's episode are Murder in the Heartland, Season 7, Episode 3, titled Last Shift at Pirate's Cove, cleveland.com, bulletin, archive.kenyon.edu, and 10tv.com. As usual, all of my sources will be linked in today's show notes. Out here, you can get away with a lot of things that you want to do, and nobody ever know what you were doing, because it's so remote. We've been looking for this girl since November 3rd. We went from being okay being in the library until midnight and walking home by ourselves to suddenly calling security to walk us home. No one around Emily believed that she just took off. She might have walked right past my door on the way to her own death. Being so close to a serial killer is just frightening. Today's case takes place in Gambier, Ohio, on the campus of Kenyon College. Kenyon College is a private liberal arts college. Gambier is also a very small town and has a lot of farming. At the time of her disappearance, Emily Murray was a junior at Kenyon College. She had grown up in Shaker Heights. One of her coworkers described her as smart, kind, and bubbly. At the time of her disappearance, Emily had worked her last shift at Pirate's Cove, a local restaurant. They had typical bar food such as pizza and burgers, and they stayed open until 2 a.m. It was one of the only places in the area that stayed open late at the time. On November 2nd, 2000, Emily went to work at her last shift at Pirate's Cove. She decided not to work anymore so she could focus on school. She had a lot of friends come in to see her that night on her last night. After closing, Emily stayed behind to clean and vacuum the restaurant. And the next morning, Emily's roommate woke up and Emily wasn't there, so she called the police. Emily and her car were both missing. A be on the lookout was put out for her and her car. Employees at the restaurant were interviewed. They had seen her looking for her car keys, and Emily clocked out at 3.07 a.m., but no one saw her after that. Shortly after Emily disappeared... Her friends were upset that no one seemed to be looking for Emily, so they wanted to start an awareness campaign, and posters were eventually posted all around campus. Emily's parents had come down from New York to help join the searches. In 2000, there were no cell phones, so they wanted to return home in case Emily called them. Emily's ex-boyfriend became a person of interest to the police. He had shown up at the restaurant for Emily's last day. Emily's roommates were also interviewed, and they had found her wallet in her dorm room. The police learned that Emily's mood had changed and had soured. She had stopped taking her antidepressants and had seemed annoyed or mad about something. There were several rumors around Emily's disappearance, that she had left school, checked herself into a mental institution, that she had run away due due to the pressure of school, and another rumor was that she had been kidnapped. Emily's parents recalled a, a story that Emily had been craving a pizza from her hometown in Shaker Heights. Emily could be spontaneous, but it wasn't unusual for her to do things like that but they thought she could not have run away. Police learned that Emily had been off her medication for about a week prior to her disappearance. Emily had previously attempted to commit suicide after her breakup. She took about 75 Tylenol, but the first responders were able to save her. The police worried about Emily's mindset when they learned that one of her exes had shown up at Pirate's Cove. They had only dated for a few months, but the relationship was volatile. 
The ex was interviewed. He said he fell hard for Emily after they met in class. He was asked about their breakup and her attempted suicide, but he didn't want to talk about it. It was clear he was devastated. He said Emily seemed agitated on the night she disappeared, and he left Pirate's Cove around 2 a.m. He was eventually cleared as a suspect. Emily had left the restaurant due to wanting to focus on her schoolwork, but the police wanted to investigate further. Females around the area on campus knew not to go into the restaurant alone. One employee named Gregory McKnight was interviewed. He was a cook at Pirate's Cove, and he was responsible for locking up the restaurant after his his shift. Gregory was asked if he knew anything about what happened to Emily. He said he knew she worked that night, but didn't see her after she had left. Gregory actually had a reputation for protecting female employees at the restaurant. He had supposedly stepped in after another male employee had made advances at a female. The police interviewed the employee that had made advances on this female. His name was Dave Kale. He had a crush on Emily, and he was quite a bit older than the other employees. Dave said he left Pirate's Cove around 11 p.m. and went to a rock concert. He also denied having a crush on Emily, but said she was pretty. Dave Kale was actually interviewed in this episode. He said he remembered a lot of people from Kenyon College were at the restaurant that night. He said he briefly spoke to Emily and said he hoped things worked out for her. He said said she had the same smile on her face as she usually did. Dave Kale was eventually cleared. There just seemed to be a lot of rumors that several male employees had sexually harassed female employees at the restaurant. There was also an area across the street from the restaurant that didn't have any lighting. On December 11, 2000, Nelson Jones, a truck driver, called 911. He had been asked to change a battery in a Honda, and he was met with an overwhelming, horrible smell. The smell was either coming from the woods or a nearby trailer. There was a green Subaru with a New York license plate. It was Emily's car. This trailer was about 90 miles away from Gambier. The car had been parked behind the trailer. The police wanted to search the grounds and trailer. They obtained a search warrant to search inside. They found an unlocked window and entered. In the bedroom, there was an odd smell, but there was no one else in the home. There had been a pool of blood found in the living room and a bloody handprint in the carpet. It was clear someone had been dragged from the living room. A rug had been rolled up, and Emily's body had been found in the rolled-up rug. Emily's parents were notified about her being found, and the police issued a statement to the campus. Emily had been shot on the right side of her head. It was clear she had been abducted and killed at the trailer. The police and search dogs searched a two-mile radius near the trailer. The cadaver dogs found human remains. The police thought they had a serial killer on their hands. The police learned that the trailer was owned by an employee at Pirate's Cove, and it belonged to Gregory McKnight, the cook. He had denied seeing Emily after she left on the night she disappeared. The police went to the restaurant and found Gregory working. He was arrested on December 13, 2000. Gregory admitted to owning the trailer. He said the last time he was there was around December 4th. The police asked Gregory if Emily would know about his property, and he didn't appear to care much about Emily or the situation he was facing. At this point, Gregory was confronted about what they had found, and he refused to talk anymore and asked for an attorney. The police believed that Gregory had targeted Emily. He knew it was Emily's last night and decided to act on it. Emily left, and Gregory followed her. He pushed her into the car and drove it to his trailer. It's believed Emily fought his advances and fought back, but he killed her. Police continued their search, and in an area near the trailer, the police discovered a hole with a water cistern. They had scooped out some of the water and found human bones. The body had been dismembered and burned. 
There were chip bones found on the property. A wood chipper had been used. The body discovered was the body of Gregory Julius, who had been missing for about five months. Gregory McKnight was charged with Gregory Julius's murder. The two were friends, and McKnight had killed Julius over either a girlfriend, drugs, or both. The police also learned that Gregory McKnight had been arrested when he was 15 for murdering another person and released from Circleville Youth Center in 1997. He killed three people and could be considered a serial killer. Gregory McKnight was found guilty of murdering Emily and Gregory Julius. He was also found guilty of aggravated murder, aggravated robbery, kidnapping, and receiving stolen property and complicity. He was sentenced to death on October 25, 2002. As if McKnight isn't already a horrible monster, in 2017, he was seeking a new trial based on racism. He was alleging that the jury had used racial slurs in their deliberations. Gregory is a monster and hopefully will remain in prison for the rest of his life. I hope the easy way out isn't given to him. I'm sure he has no remorse, though, for taking the lives of three people. The justice system absolutely failed Emily and Greg. I'd love to know what you think. Book recommendation for this week is Little Ghosts by Greg Dunnett. One moment, my beautiful daughter, her face flushed from the sun, her curls still wet from splashing in the ocean, was waiting in line for a strawberry ice cream. The next, she was gone. As I sit in her dimly lit bedroom, surrounded by flickering candles, I feel the crushing weight of my daughter's absence. It's been two years since Layla was murdered. The police have searched tirelessly for her killer, but they found nothing. It's like whoever did it vanished into thin air. My once perfect marriage is falling apart. We can hardly look at each other anymore. Our 10-year-old son, Gail, is struggling. He's changed since she died. He's more secretive and also, I can't quite put my finger on it. They were so close. Is this Gail's coming to terms with her death? Still, unease creeps over me as I watch him. He just stares past me at something I can't see. Then one day, as I butter his toast for breakfast, my son tells me something that stops me in my tracks. I know who killed Layla. I can barely get the words out to ask how, looking at me with his serious little boy expression. He puts a hand on my arm, she told me. I like this book because it was different. It wasn't just a psychological thriller, but also included what grief looks like from every age. While Layla's family is devastated by her death, Gail tells his mom that he can talk to Layla and knows what happened to her. I think if anyone told me that they could talk to someone who isn't alive anymore, I'd be shocked too. I definitely like this relationship between Gail and Layla, though. I give this book an 8 out of 10. Please subscribe to my blog, follow me on Instagram, Twitter, email me, buy me a coffee, and please leave me a 5-star rating and review if you're enjoying this podcast. I'll be back next week with an all-new case and book recommendation. And remember, it's Crime O'Clock somewhere.